Alpert and Tupac Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. This is weekly Monday appearance. The managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest. And in this edition of the program, as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, the World Series, naturally. The series begins in Cleveland, which means the Chicago Cubs, a National League team, will be able to avail themselves of the designated hitter rule. Dave Cameron explains how, in particular with the inclusion of Kyle Schwarber on the roster, those Cubs are particularly well-suited, indeed much more well-suited than other NL teams, to take advantage of the DH. Of course, Chicago is not the only club which has changed its roster entering the World Series. Cleveland themselves have also made a change, adding right-hander Danny Salazar. Cameron suggests that Salazar is almost a certainty to start for Cleveland at some point during the series, but it's also probably a mystery as to what one could expect from him. Finally, a brief frightening moment on the program this week as discussing the Cubs' roster situation, in particular their bullpen, Dave Cameron suffers the minorist of strokes. Zastrzyzny. More about the World Series in what follows with Dave Cameron. But first, a message from our sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. I'm only observing what I see with my eyes when I suggest that the world is full of work and hassle. Those twin enemies needn't burden our ticket-buying experience, however, which is why listeners should consider SeatGeek. What SeatGeek does is to pull tickets available at all the other sites, probably in the world, maybe in the world. Anyway, so you could save time and never miss a deal. And what they do also is to assess a grade based on value to every ticket so that it's possible to underprice seats and, like an early 20th century general manager, exploit inefficiencies in the market. And best of all, what is SeatGeek if not famous for their honesty? Unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from the beginning to the end of a transaction, never adding any fees or mysterious fees. And for enduring this message about SeatGeek, listeners are invited to claim a $20 rebate, here's how you do it. You download the free SeatGeek app. You go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Enter the promo code FANGRAPHS. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code FANGRAPHS today. Your nearest possible convenience. With which utterance we have reached the end of the sponsor's message and nearly the end of the introduction itself. What is it? It is FANGRAPHS Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. If you're a little further away, you can hear the room a little bit more. Because okay, how's this? Yeah, that's pretty good. Now I'm like leaning into it. Okay. Can I ask you... Dave, I want to begin by asking you a question somewhat related to the post you wrote today regarding Kyle Schwarber, okay. whose status for the Cubs World Series roster, I think, where would you, well, well, we'll start first with this. Where would you put the probability of Schwarber's name appearing on that roster? 98%. Oh, really? Yeah. So I think it was Jonathan Mayo reported that uh, he's flying to Cleveland after he, so he's playing in the Arizona Fall League today. The Mesa Solar Sox have a day game. And so he's going to play in that game and then immediately get on a plane and fly to Cleveland. That suggests, like, it doesn't guarantee anything, but that suggests that they're planning on having him on the roster tomorrow. Yeah, it really does, uh, unless they just want him around as a talisman. I mean, right. It's like, you know, there's no harm in booking a flight, right? <laughs> like, they could be like, well, you know, the 
the game today didn't go well or he looked bad or they just make a different decision or at least it gives them an option. But the fact that they're even flying him there and they've planned to fly him there suggests that they're very heavily considering putting him on the roster. How many pitchers are the Cubs currently carrying or did they carry the first through the first two series? And they had 12 in the LCS. They added Rob Zastrzyzny. Yeah, I think that's right. Zastrzyzny, yeah. Zastrzyzny uh, as like the 12th pitcher for the NLCS. Uh, I'm assuming he would be the guy to go if they decided to carry Schwarber. If only because with um, their current group of position players, uh, it's already a little bit heavy on guys who can't play the infield where you're carrying three catchers and then you also have Jorge Soler and Albert Almora as only outfielders. So Chris Coughlin, who's like the sixth outfielder on the roster, is essentially the only backup infielder who doesn't start. Like, they have five infielders starting when Javier Baez plays second and Zobris plays the outfield. Um, but Coughlin's the only guy who would be available from the bench to go in to play an outfield, an infield spot if, like, a couple of guys collided or something. So I don't think Coughlin would come off the roster uh, for that reason. So they're probably looking at going down to 11 pitchers if they add Schwarber. Right, and... Now, what does what does a National League team typically carry in terms of uh, pitching staff during the regular season? So, thirteen twelve is pretty standard now. Most most teams carry seven relievers. Right, but but in uh, in a case where you're only going to have to go four deep in the rotation, that gives you a bit more flexibility. Right, most teams don't carry twelve pitchers in the in the postseason. That's a little bit unusual, uh, especially when you have good starting pitching. I mean, like it would be one thing if the Indians carried twelve starting pitchers because some of those starting pitchers are named. Josh Tomlin and Ryan Merritt, uh, then you can say, hey, look, we just need more bullpen depth. Uh, but when you have, you know, Jake Arrieta and Kyle Hendricks and John Lester and John Lackey, you probably don't need 12 pitchers. Um, so I think there's an argument to be made that Zestrisny is a little bit superfluous for the Cubs. Um, but as I noted, I think, in the piece today, they don't really have a traditional long guy. Like Mike Montgomery is kind of their other longer reliever, but he's also kind of their second-best lefty reliever, and Harold's Chapman is their closer. So if they wanted to use Montgomery in kind of matchup situations in the sixth, seventh inning, you don't want to be putting him in the second or third inning if, say, John Lackey gets destroyed in game four. Um, Zestrisny gives you the flexibility to use Montgomery more as kind of a traditional matchup reliever or a one-inning guy. Um, knowing that if, you know, someone gets bombed, the Struzny can go four or five innings if need be. Right. Now, I would assume also the, the the guy at the end of the pitching staff becomes a little less important during the playoffs, if only because, as we've seen, there's going to be a, probably a greater reliance on the best relief pitchers, more so than there would be during the regular season. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the other interesting things with – you know, you could argue for even maybe even carrying 10 pitchers, especially um, the way that Cleveland is using Andrew Miller and Cody Allen, where they're throwing whatever, 30, 40% of the team's innings. They do, we really need, you know, five other relievers down there when we're, we're relying so heavily on our top two and there's frequent off days. Um, so you never have to play uh, that often before everyone in the bullpen gets a rest. I think you could put the case together for a smaller pitching staff and, you know, a 14-11 or a 15-10 split between hitters and pitchers in the postseason. Um, but interestingly, um, I think teams, the way they're constructed now, they don't necessarily have a 14th or 15th position player that they necessarily want to stick on the roster. The Cubs might now with Schwarber, but neither team is carrying, like, say, a Terrence Gore-style pinch runner, uh, mm-hmm. which we've seen in, in past years can make a pretty big difference. You might actually argue that that would actually be more valuable uh, to both Cleveland and Chicago instead of a guy like Schwarber is if they had some guy who could just pinch run and steal the base and whatever he wanted. Right. Well, of course, a lot of guys on Cleveland 
not that they're as fast as Terrence Gore, but it's, it's generally a rather quick team, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess neither of these teams are like super slow. <laughs> they're not full of guys you'd pinch run for besides the catchers. Right. Now, I've, the reason I was asking you about the, the probability of Schwarber, other than, you know, of course, as you mentioned, the theater of it and just the general interest of it is because he'll be playing DH typically. Isn't that right? Yeah. If, he, if he's on the roster, he'll DH in games one, two, six, and seven. And I guess, I, I guess I'm interested in, to, to the degree you're familiar with it, how, NL teams in general use uh, use the designated hitter. You know, be, obviously, uh, this is not just a question that comes up. Or I should say that arises during uh, during the playoffs. This this happens in interleague play. A, a brief examination of the numbers reveals <clears throat> that National League teams, when pressed into using a DH, typically do not have the same sort of success that American League teams, who, who's of course whose rosters are you know, are built around that rule. Uh, they don't, they don't, the National League teams don't perform as well. I think that the general, like the OPS plus overall for NL teams when using a DH, it's about 91. For American League teams, it's 109. Right. So um, American League yeah. teams have guys who, you know, are basically DHs throughout the regular season. National League teams kind of have to say, okay, what do we want to do with this extra roster spot we just now get? Uh, I think traditionally what happens is National League teams just DH their worst defender. So, uh, you know, if you're, say, like the, I think Mike Morse uh, a couple of years ago when he was on the Giants, he you know, like played left field. That wasn't a good idea. So as soon as they had the DH available, they were like, Mike Morse, you don't play the field anymore. Uh, <laughs> they would put, you know, Gregor Blanco ever in the outfield. Um, so it would help the team, but not necessarily help the team's offense because you'd be putting in a defensive specialist and improving your glove work. So I think looking just at OPS Plus might underrate the value that National League teams get because generally what happens is that they're improving their fielding more than they're hitting. Okay, right. And and um, in terms of carrying players, we've talked about some of the roster construction, how the, for the Cubs they have, what, like they're carrying, what, a half dozen outfielders or something like this? Yeah. Typically during the regular season, do, do National League and American League teams carry a different amount of outfielders or infielders? Uh, compared to the postseason? Well, compared to each other. Uh, well, in general, National League teams are going to carry um, more position players that can play a position because they don't have a DH taking up the spot, right? So, uh, you know, like if you're an American League team and you have David Ortiz or Kendris Morales or something, you're not carrying – you're carrying a hitter that does not – qualify as either an infielder or an outfielder, a National League <laughs> team would just have a guy who could play the field in that spot. So they would carry mm-hmm. one extra at either infield or outfield because they don't have a immobile statue. Right. Now, the Cubs do, though, among National League teams, they seem particularly well-suited to deploying a DH because they have players who are talented on both sides of the ball. And, of course, uh, they, they have, I mean, one of the best offenses in the league right now and, what, in recent history? Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think the Cubs are well-suited to having a DH more than most NL teams because the Cubs just have better players than most NL teams. Like, for a lot of National League teams, they get the, the World Series and be like, oh, I need to find a ninth position player that I actually want to give the bats to. The Cubs are like, we have, like, 13 guys we would like to hit if we had chances. So I think this is just a a um, uh, an instance of the Cubs just having better players, which is why they are the best team in baseball, and this is one more way in that uh, that kind of shows itself. Right now, would would Schwarber were he to were he to be a member of the roster and were he to DH when the uh, when the games were taking place in Cleveland, would he start against uh, both right-handers and left-handers, or would he be used in a platoon? Well, the Indians don't have any left-handers, so 
What about Ryan Merritt? Okay, well, I don't actually think he's going to pitch in the World Series. Oh, you don't? No. I think if it comes down to it, like, they're going to be like, that was a fun four-inning experiment, but let's mm-hmm. not do that again. <laughs> like, Ryan Merritt throws 87. Uh, you know, I don't think that there's a lot of um, confidence that Ryan Merritt's going to get the Cubs out over multiple innings. Um, so I, my guess would be Corey Kluber's going to go on short rest in the World Series, and he's going to pitch one four seven. What do you think would be an argument? Uh, could you make an argument though for for having Merritt start with Danny Salazar right behind him in order to uh, force the Cubs to stack their lineup or you know to uh, structure their lineup against the left-hander and then to introduce uh, Danny Salazar into? The I think game? if Danny Salazar is healthy enough to pitch, there's no reason to throw Ryan Merritt. Yeah, that's probably true. You got you got me there. Yeah, I, mean, I guess you, really, if you have like Salazar ready to pitch in Game Four, and you throw Merritt out, and he gives up like a three-run bomb in the first inning, and you lose three to two, you're gonna be like, "Well, that was stupid. Why did I just start Salazar?" Yeah, that's probably true. Well, maybe I guess what because you're concerned about endurance, but I, but I suppose that the postseason is different in that way anyway, right? Because you could just have Merritt waiting as a long relief option. Yeah, I mean, right? You start Salazar, and if he's if he's not good or he struggles or something, and you're down early, then you put in Merritt and say like, "Okay, maybe we're just punting this game." But I don't think you start Merritt. Uh, and then limit Sal- how long Salazar could potentially go because you rode Ryan Merritt too long. Right. The Indians so World Series should not end because Ryan Merritt pitched too many innings. That would be. Is Schwarber, would Schwarber, if, if Ryan Merritt were pitching, would Schwarber start against him? Uh, probably. I mean, Merritt's not the kind of guy who's going to be a big platoon split lefty anyway, right? Like, he doesn't really have a good breaking ball, and he doesn't right. throw hard. So this is the kind of guy who we generally see as often reverse platoon splits, because he has a good changeup and good command. So I think if you're running Kyle Schwarber out there, and you're like, look, Merritt's only going to pitch a couple of innings, and Schwarber's going to get one at bat against him, and he's probably not a platoon split guy, why wouldn't you? You think you're going to mostly see right-handers the rest of the game anyway. Right. Do we have any sort of a way of because I know you you tried today and uh, to you, you, to sort of think about it generally and I think we uh, we were on a call with Eric Longenhagen regarding another player who had appeared in the World Series after a temporary layoff. Raul oh, Montesi last year. Yeah, right, Montesi who had played at what what level? Like he he was in instructs. He was in fall instructs. Yeah, wasn't he, he like played at Double A I think last year and mm-hmm. then he went to the instructional league and hung out for a little while and then and then Ben Zobrist's wife guy birth or something and they needed him on the roster for depth so they called him up and they were like hey stop watching tv and come play in the world series and make your video i guess it's rare yeah for a player to move directly from fall instructs or you know a week removed from it to go to a world series roster i don't think that happens very often yeah. no i wouldn't think but it <laughs> but as we're seeing it uh, of course this is not this is arizona fall league also probably rare for a player to go from the arizona fall league uh, to a World Series roster, but I guess I'm curious: is there any way of of estimating? Maybe Jeff Zimmerman has done work with this of estimating like a player's true talent when he's coming off of not even the injury, just the just the amount of time off. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is like we don't really know because you don't you don't really have any data on guy who misses the whole season then plays a week in October against great pitching, right? Like, even if you can look at, like, in the regular season, a guy who misses three months, but he's going to go out on a rehab assignment and play in the minors. Like, there's just no uh, precedence for a guy missing six months. He'd be like, let's look at all these similar options. Like, it doesn't happen. So we don't really know the effect of not swinging a bat against Major League pitching for six months and then having to face World Series caliber pitching, like, uh, it could be nothing. It could be huge. It could be anything in between. It's like a total guess. 
if forced to speculate, right? Uh, because um, obviously teams have a hold of proprietary information and uh, they have the resources uh, to acquire that information that uh, we do not possess. Uh, if you're, if, what, what would you, what would your guess be about the way that Theo Epstein at all attempt to answer the question of Kyle Schwarber's true talent as of today? Uh, I think they're going to guess. I, I don't <laughs> think there's like a, I don't think they have a machine learning model that's going to spit out a number that they're going to be like, ah, oh, we trust this because uh-huh. there's just no data. Or there's no trustworthy data, right? So like, I think they're going to talk to their scouts and they're going to say, hey, look, how did he look? Uh, how did the swing look? We're going to talk to him. They, they're obviously very high on Schwarber. They think he's, um, you know, one of the smartest, uh, hitters around. And, and I think they're going to probably lean towards giving him the benefit of the doubt. And he said, if he says, Hey, I feel like, you know, just like I did midseason last year, my swing's great. Uh, I think they're probably going to just defer to him and say, okay, we trust you. Let's, let's see what you got. Especially because, um, from their perspective, they're probably not counting on Rob Zestrizny playing a huge part of their World Series roster, so they might not think this is a huge loss in order to put Schwarber on there just to see what happens. And, you know, like if game they put him on in game one and he looks atrocious, they can always be like, ah, his knee hurt, <laughs> take him off and put Zestrizny back on. They can just claim injury. So um, that might actually be like the kind of the most clever move is just put him on for the first two games of the series, let him DH in Cleveland, and then take him off for games three through seven uh, because then you get the extra pitcher or whatever for the National League games and you don't have to carry him in the games that he can't play. Yeah, I suppose it, uh, it's not uh, difficult to make a claim that a player's knee hurts if he's just come back. From <laughs> yeah, guy six months removed from ACL surgery. No one's going to challenge the validity of, oh, his knee hurts, he needs to be replaced on the, on the roster. Right, 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 yeah. Um, <clears throat> I guess backing up a little bit, I, I was excited to talk about the Schwarber situation, the DH situation, uh, but I suppose it makes sense to look back a little bit uh, to what did happen, um, in particular because... If you were to look at the lines of the two pitchers, uh, Clayton Kershaw and Kyle Hendricks, for the last game of the National League Championship Series, um, it would not be uh, – w- well, not that Hendricks had a bad season or anything, but, of course, one assumes uh, that Clayton Kershaw will dominate at all times, um, even his uh, some of his postseason difficulties aside. Uh, do, do we have a sense of what happened to Clayton Kershaw during that last game? Because I suppose anytime someone who's almost always perfect uh, ends up not being so, uh, you always wonder about something like injury. I know that his curveball was not working like it uh, usually does, and he only has three pitches, so that's uh, sort of important for him. Yeah, but he couldn't throw his breaking ball for strikes, which meant he wasn't getting ahead in counts, so hitters weren't chasing pitches out of the zone, and he was uh, having a center fastballs a decent amount, and that's why he gave up some home runs. Um, I think Andrew Friedman said after the game, that we probably have not understood the severity of, of Kershaw's back injury and like it's potentially the kind of thing that he maybe shouldn't have come back from, which makes the fact that he did come back and pitch as well as he did amazing, if true. I mean, obviously Friedman has some incentive to, to cover for his pitcher. Right. Um, but I think, you know, it seems like Kershaw has carried a very heavy workload the last couple of weeks. And at some point that was probably going to catch up with him, whether it was, health related or just, you know, wearing down from, from fatigue. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it seemed unlikely that Kershaw was going to be able to do what he did in the first round throughout the playoffs without any repercussions. And so, you know, I think that's maybe a little bit the downside of how they had to use him in the final uh, game of the NLDS 
is, hey, look, you know, Kershaw at some point was going to have to pay the piper for for the heavy usage, and uh, it's possible that he ended up paying the piper in Game Six of the NLCS. No, I is there a situation where no, Andrew Freeman said we don't we may not know the severity. Is there a situation where a player? I mean, I'm sure it exists, but I'm curious about concrete examples if they if they do exist, uh, where a player may not necessarily hurt, but at the same time might be diminished in a way that you know, uh, for example, Kershaw would just lose a pitch over which he typically exhibits you know a great deal of mastery. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a major league pitcher, so I don't know for sure. This is like super speculative, but yeah. it seems normal that like you would have some level of fatigue that could impact you in a way that you're not injured, right? Like fatigue and injury are very different. And we've talked about, you know, catchers wearing down at the end of the season or um, certain pitchers who are, you know, maybe smaller and, and um, have lighter frames have been speculated as like guys who won't be able to hold up through October. And was it Eric Bedard? Like, never pitched past September 10th his entire career. Like, he did just get to August and his body would give up. Um, and so I think there probably is something to, like, at some point your body is just like, I'm tired, I can't do this thing you want me to do anymore. Um, uh, you know, I've experienced that when running some distances, actually. Like, well, yeah, like normal people, it, you, it happens all the time. Yeah, your body's just like, <laughs> screw this, I'm done. And you're not hurt, your just body just wants to quit doing what you're doing. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know how Clayton Kershaw felt on Saturday night, but Maybe his body was just like, yeah, I don't want to throw any more curveballs this year. Yeah, that's the the body, the human body. Uh, not, I mean, this is only a half tangent. The human body is is very strange, and of course, you can speak for this with some experience. Not not talking about your inability to run a distance, but uh, but as a survivor of cancer, it's it seems to be simultaneously uh, miraculous, right? That everything in the body works and that you mostly stay alive all the time. And then also, like, it could seem, like, instantly it can seem uh, entirely feeble as well. Yeah, it's your a, body a, your body has a chance to uh, to go from perfectly healthy to uh, totally broken in a matter of seconds. Yeah. It's terrible. It's, it's, a, it's a strange machine. We are a brittle bunch. Yeah, I know. And I think like, throwing a baseball, uh, a great way to break yourself. All right, regardless of how good you are. It's going to be – now, obviously, some. Sometimes uh, I know that sometimes when my my wife and I are sitting at home and our dog is doing something particularly adorable, you know, mm-hmm. um, almost to sort of like hedge hedge the <laughs> I don't know I don't know what the impulse is, but I'm going to be like I'll say something to the effect of or she will be like I'll be like oh it's it's terrible to think about how she's going to die someday yeah. right like that's the reaction. Um, because he's like, well, look how adorable she is, right. and it, um, and I, I don't necessarily know what the impulse is to say that, but it exists. Uh, but that happens. It's hard to imagine sometimes when pitchers like Clayton Kershaw, and of course this was the case, what's well, been the case with every pitcher who's retired, I suppose, eventually. But I remember in particular with regard to Roy Halladay, for you know, for long stretches of his career, he looked essentially, uh, in, you know, impervious to anything. Right. And then, uh, well, one season, I think he was putting up excellent fielding independent numbers, but giving up lots of runs. And then he was just gone. Yeah. And he, uh, he evaporated. Just let him pitch anymore. Right, yeah. And then, and that, but that's going to happen to Clayton Kershaw someday. So I want to ask about your dog. Yeah. Uh, so your dog's name is America. Yeah. As a, how much of a proxy is your dog for actual America? Like, have the last six months, <laughs> has your dog, like, lost his mind? <laughs> um, well, 
Yeah, and, uh, no, we do. We did that, and it's actually it's actually worked better now uh, than ever before. But uh, you know, when when you hear news reports or whatever, uh, and you know, people talk about America, it's yeah. it. And of course, what they're doing now, as much as they are ever, uh, it's just it's funny that they're talking about your dog. So it's it provides a, um, I suppose a, a dig. Uh, what is that called? Not a digression, but you, uh, a diversion. Yeah. yeah, a diversion from all of the all of the terror. Well, it would be funny if like uh, your dog just kind of encapsulated uh, America. So like, I mean, maybe like forty percent of the time, she was just like really angry about things. She's uh, yeah, she's uh, she loves sleeping. Oh, well, that's yeah. that's similar. Yeah, America, yeah. America also loves sleeping. Yeah, that's right. Someone was writing to me about how. Spain Spaniards sleep like an hour less than usual than or, or no they have like an hour they're like less productive by an hour than the rest of Europe maybe mm. yeah, this is I'm regurgitating this fact by Spaniards you mean people from Spain not like conquer spaniels right Spaniards Spaniards not spaniels Spaniards <laughs> but because the, because they're weirdly situated I guess with regard to sun and the, their time zone so they essentially like the way that their time zone is constructed. They have an hour, like a, they have like a um, an hour less to use, um, and so they uh, they're less productive because of it. Don't know the relevance to uh, to the yeah, previous conversation, yeah. but uh, thought I would say that because it's a fact that I know, sort of. Okay, well I'm glad we could talk about America and then Spaniards. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Hey, I have a question. Okay. Uh, this has been a point of uh, um, of some concern, some interest during the playoffs, certainly, uh, um, in, especially with regard to Andrew Miller. Is the uh, the bullpen revolution, whether it's occurring or not? Yeah. It is occurring. It is occurring. It's occurring. And and we've talked about we talked last week about how roles during the regular season. Um, are valuable if for no other reason than they help to manage innings for relievers. Correct. Right. Um, so you have those roles. I was uh, talking with Eric Longenhagen, I guess, uh, during our most recent podcast, and we were talking about Michael Kopech. He was about to go see Michael Kopech. Yeah. Are you familiar with Kopech? I am. Throws over 100. Uh, maybe there's some question about the durability because there probably ought to be a question about the durability for anyone who throws over 100. Correct. Right. Yeah. Um, and we started to to think about like the candidates. Well, Kopech, like you know, first Kopech's future role, and then second, the candidates for the Andrew Miller type role in the future. Whether they would actually, if they weren't necessarily established closers already, right? Maybe there's a generation of closers who, for whatever reason, don't adapt to that role, you know, very easily. Not to say that they wouldn't, but if they didn't, or if managers wanted to experiment with this role. The sort of prospect that you might want to use in that role, and uh, Michael Kopech was a name that came up. Of course, the combination of velocity and concerns about health, and then Frankie Montas, formerly of the White Sox system, and then formerly of the Dodgers system, and now currently of the Oakland system. I think he came over in the Rich Hill and uh, Josh Reddick deal. But I'm curious for you, like, what is there any difference between? Those pitchers who are serving as their team's closer right now, and the sort of pitcher who would be best suited uh, f- for this sort of relief ace role in the middle innings. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's an interesting question. Like, um, 
is there a set of skills that would work best kind of in this role? And I think, you know, we, we know some things that, uh, would be disqualifiers, right? So like big platoon splits. Like if you have a huge platoon split, you can't really do this Andrew Miller thing because part of the, what Andrew Miller is doing is coming in and facing whoever's up for the next eight or nine or ten batters, whatever it is. Um, and if you're a guy who like a side arming, you know, left handed specialist or something, you're out. Like the, you, you have to be able to get hitters of both sides. Uh, the played out in order to fill this role. But the trick is that most pitchers who can get out guys from both right and left-handers are starting pitchers. Like, guys are in the bullpen generally because they can't do this. This is the primary disqualifying skill that <laughs> makes you a relief pitcher. So we're essentially looking for a subset of relievers who got moved to the bullpen for some reason beyond problems with opposite-handed hitters. Usually that's health, right? So, like, that's kind of the other reason. So, if you have, like, Brad Lidge, I think is a good example. This was, like, a dominant guy who could destroy every hitter he faced, but he just wasn't healthy enough to stay in the rotation. So, they stuck him in the bullpen and said, here you go. Go lights out for 20 pitches at a time. Well, if you have a guy who can only throw 20 pitches, uh, then I don't think you're necessarily going to have him extended in this longer role. So, now you're looking for healthy enough guys who can get guys out from both sides of the plate but aren't starters for some reason. It's not a huge group of pitchers, right? So I think um, there's probably fewer Andrew Millers out there than than teams wished. And I think it would be like I wouldn't be surprised if every team this winter is looking at their pitchings, their pitchers and currently and saying, which one of these could be our Andrew Miller? And maybe like twenty of them will be like, We don't have one. <laughs> we don't we don't have a guy who can do this. There I would imagine there's more than one. I don't think Miller's the only guy who could do this. Um, but I don't think that there's you know, 50 to 100 Andrew Miller sitting around in the minor leagues who just need to be given the chance to pitch multiple innings because if they could pitch multiple innings at a high level, they should just start. Well, of course, Andrew Miller uh, was a, I mean, he was a top prospect, right? Yeah. Uh, was he at a UNC? Yeah, I actually right? watched him pitch in Carolina, and uh, I was a big fan even back then. Was he the same staff as Matt Harvey? No, Daniel Bard. I saw oh, them pitch on back-to-back days, and uh, I think, I mean, at that point, like, who cares what I thought after watching him pitch, but I, I wrote an article uh, calling him a left-handed Roy Halladay. I was a, mm-hmm. I was a big fan of, like, a 6'7 lefty throwing downhill with a nasty slider, um, and at that point, like, a pretty decent changeup for a college pitcher. Uh, and then I saw Daniel Bard, and all he had was 100, <laughs> like, no off-speed stuff, and it was like, yep, yeah, Miller is better. Okay. And well, of course, Miller, you know, for a time that wasn't true necessarily. True. Miller uh, was kind of a bust and bounced around the majors and Daniel Bard at one point was a dominant reliever before he got the yips. Right. Uh, so <clears throat> now Miller was a starter, but he has not started since 2011, I guess, yeah. uh, when he made some starts with the Boston Red Sox. Of course, Boston made him, uh, you know, converted him to relief. He had pitched, he had pitched a little bit in that capacity, but not, a, not as much as he, as he would go on to pitch. And he dominated from there. Now, um, uh, I guess what, what was it, what was the issue for him? Was it, cause I don't think he has huge platoon splits, right? Or even if he does have a split, it's not that righties are really raking off of him. Right. He's basically death to lefties and tough on righties. Mm hmm. Right, so well, there's yeah, a split it, there, but only because like no one could be as good against right-handers as he is against lefties. Right, and that in that slider, I mean, he he has also figured out how to throw that slider to right-handers too. Yeah. I think there's great footage in uh, a post that August Fagersham did today. I mean, you could see it him do it against multiple batters, but it's I think it was against Brian Dozier, yeah. where it's that sort of pitch right where a guy essentially is swinging at a pitch that that could also hit him. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I love about Andrew Miller is he basically has two sliders, right? Like, he throws the kind of, uh, 
down an insider to that right-hander that's, like, diving at them. Um, and forget lefties. Like, lefties have no chance against this pitch. But, like, right-handers, they have to fear the one that, like, starts in the strike zone and ends up at their ankles. And this is the one that they look silly at swinging. But then he also, like, throws the one that starts in the left-handed batter's box and ends up in the strike zone. And mm-hmm. so, like, you know, I jokingly tweeted out last week, like, why is anybody even swinging at Andrew Miller at this point? You might as well just stand there with a bat on your shoulder and hope he just throws four balls and puts you on base. But he's, like, got really great command. And I think if you were, like, took a patient approach against Andrew Miller, he would just, like, backdoor slider you to death, and you'd sit down with, you know, strike one, strike two, strike three, and, and that was the end of that. Now, Andrew Miller had a, a, a great conversation with David Lorla. Some good stuff came out of that. And I'm wondering if this might help us towards identifying these Andrew Miller types, right? Is he said that as a younger player, this the slider, and it's still the case, he feels as though he has better command of the slider than he does the fastball. Yeah. Right? Um, and obviously his fastball's fine now, yeah. but the problem was as a starter, if he had if he was behind in the count, he felt more comfortable throwing the slider. However, baseball, you know, hundred a hundred years of baseball tradition, I don't want you to do that. Yeah. right, suggests you throw the fastball. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, there's probably some logic behind it, right? Because, um, well, I guess I'm presuming something, and maybe the presumption's wrong. Is the slider more difficult on the arm than the fastball? Yeah, I mean, that's been the theory forever. There's not a lot of evidence that proves it, but it's like the working theory in baseball that if you throw too many sliders, you're going to blow out your arm. Right. So if you start from that presumption, then, then you start, then you also have to say that we, we want to keep this slider, this guy's slider usage, or we don't want him to throw more than this number of sliders per game, right? right, As a starter. And so maybe that is part of identifying it, whether we, whether the slider is actually more difficult in the arm than the fastball or not. Is maybe maybe you identify guys, and this is something that would be easier to do from a scouting perspective. I don't know how you would necessarily suss it out, but guys who who are who feel more comfortable uh, commanding their secondary stuff than they do their fastball. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting idea, and I think one of the things we've seen with Miller this uh, postseason is he's like screwing the common wisdom in terms of slider usage. He's throwing more sliders than fastballs and just like, right. look, I'm just going to beat you and I'll worry about my arm in the offseason. Um, so I, it'll be an interesting shift of like, is this kind of the precursor to a change in um, usage of pitch types? Like maybe if people see that like, look, we can use these types of guys for three innings and they can dominate throwing 60% off-speed stuff, maybe starting pitchers should throw more off-speed stuff. Like I'm not 100% convinced that kind of the standard – 60% fastball usage is ideal. Um, you know, maybe maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I I think at this point we're kind of at an inertia where this is just what pitchers are taught to do. Um, but I, I wouldn't be shocked if, like, fewer fastballs was actually more effective. It might might lead to more injuries. We don't know. Um, but if, if it could be pitched in such a way that, like, you didn't put your arm at more risk, but you could throw more pitches that were harder to hit, that seems like a good combination. Now, speaking of pitchers who... Uh, prefer their secondary pitches over their fastball, or at least are not afraid to throw them a lot, and also uh, maybe deal with health-related questions. Rich Hill. Do you think that Rich Hill is a candidate for this, like, ultimate relief ace role? Because, you know, so I was doing the uh, contract crowdsourcing, you know? Yeah. And Rich Hill, if you prorate his projected war over 200 innings, He's projected as like a seven-win player. Yeah, he's he's an elite pitcher when he's on the mound. Right, exactly. And he's not. I mean, he pitched and he's on the mound all the time though. Yeah. He pitched 110 innings this year, yeah. which, you know, with the exception of 
uh, one of his first seasons in the majors, 2007. I mean, it was a decade later that he's that he had almost 10 years in between 100 inning seasons. Yeah, I think um, one of the fascinating things with Hill is that he was 10 years younger. Like if he had not had this really weird career, the question of how you use him going forward would be a lot different. Now that he's 37 or going into his age 37 season, you don't necessarily care about his long-term durability. Like the question for whoever signs up to a contract this winter is how do I extract the most value I can from Hill before he retires? At this point, it's probably just throw him as a starter until he breaks. Like just right. let's just give him 150, 180 innings a year, whatever it is, until he just his body falls apart, which might be pretty soon. Um, but you're gonna try and just extract maximum value, maximum quantity of pitches. Uh, if he was 27 and say, look, this guy could have a 10 year career, we owe it to him to give him a chance to have that. Maybe we don't want to just run him into the ground. But when you're 37 and like this is your first big contract, basically, like just pitch until you're you're not able to pitch anymore. Now the the, uh, the the people have voted. What do you have a, any sense of Rich Hill's? Now last year, right? He he represented an interesting case yeah. uh, contractually because he. Uh, and this will be the last thing I ask you because you have uh, you fulfilled your obligation. Um, he represented a strange case last year because he had four um, unparalleled starts. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was he was lights out, but that was that, that was his best pitching performance literally since two thousand seven. Yeah. Uh, and so the question of how much to give that sort of player, how many years, how many dollars per year, was a difficult one. He ended up with what? One year and six million bucks. Six million bucks. Oakland smart uh, worked out well for Oakland. Yeah, I say probably because they got to have him, and then they got to trade him for, among other people, uh, Jarrell Cotton and Frankie Montas and Greg Holmes. Oh yeah, that's right. So so what's the for you? What is the uh, do you, what is your uh, ballpark estimate in terms of years and dollars? So I think he's going to get three years, mostly because uh, someone just wants to backload the deal. Like, I don't think anyone is going to bet on Rich Hill providing value to them in 2019. Um, mm-hmm. But I think they're going to look at it and say, look, I can pay him $22 million a year for two years or $15 million a year for three years or whatever. And they're going to do the calculus and say, I'd just rather lower my um, my 2017 commitment in terms of dollars so that I can just spread it around and spend more money on other players. So I think he's going to get a three-year deal. Um, so the question is kind of how much value does a team think they're going to get from him next year? And then at that point you're discounting, you know, 2018, probably 75% or something, because you just can't imagine that Hill is going to be able to stay healthy as a injury prone 38 year old. Uh, you can't expect, you can't project a lot of value uh, past next year. So the question is like, how valuable is Rich Hill next year? I think you could argue like, you know, those 100, and, 100 to 150 innings that you could reasonably expect might be worth 30 million bucks. So, you know, if you're going to say, look, I would pay, you know, for what I think he could give me something like 30 million next year or 25 million, something along those lines. And then I think it's reasonable to like throw 10 million as like a total wild speculative guess the year after that. And then another 5 million after that. All of a sudden you're at 40, 40, 45 million dollars. So if I had to guess, I'm going to come in around 345. The fact that he's not tied to a qualifying offer. So there's no draft pick compensation and it's a bad free agent class. Um, maybe he'll push over 50. I think I've seen like Sam Miller, who's like made a, a summer hobby out of predicting Rich Hill's contract and what he would pay him. I think has him at like 363. I think it's, it's tough for me to see Rich Hill getting sixty million, but I think somewhere between that forty, fifty million, uh, maybe fifty-five, somewhere in there. All right. Hey, you've done a lot today, Cameron. I have. That's true. Yeah, you've fulfilled your obligation. Among That's other things. Good news. 
Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's let, allow you to shove off then. Okay, I will go shove. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'll say thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome, Carson Stooley. That has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.